Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the university historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. I'm overjoyed to have my dear friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Jamar Tisby, on the show today. Jamar graduated from Notre Dame, and he went on to get his master's in divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He got his Ph.D. in history from the University of Mississippi and is a New York Times bestselling author, historian, and nationally renowned public speaker. Jamar and I spent years together traveling across Mississippi and the South, where young Christian scholars spreading the message of racial healing and social justice. We've podcasted together, gone on live political talk radio, and even taken groups on racial healing pilgrimages to Charleston, South Carolina. These experiences have bonded us and our friendship continues to grow. On today's show, Jamar and I will reflect on our lives together and our experiences spreading racial healing across Mississippi. We'll talk about the Christian church and its battles with racism today and in the past, and Jamar's path from the seminary to best-selling author. Please welcome Dr. Jamar Tisby. Hey everyone, we're here on Purpose That Prevails. This is Dr. Otis Pickett here with Dr. Jamar Tisby. And I went on Jamar's podcast around 2015, and Jamar, it feels like you were on to something back then, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love how the historian starts with a date in history. Yes, that's that's very on brand for yeah. you. <laughs> like, yeah, I bet, you know, this podcast thing I think is going to do well. It, it might take off one day. One day, yes. <laughs> It's, it's funny, on my other podcast called Pass the Mic, we, we just had a podcasting retreat where we recorded a bunch of episodes, including our 10th anniversary episode. We've been doing it for 10 Man. years. It's wild. Yes. Wow. So yeah, this, wow. this podcast thing might have some legs. I remember that first night, it was, I believe it was the night of the Emanuel AME massacre. Mm. That first night we yep. recorded a podcast together. You Trying that? to process that. Yep. Well, man, hey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. We are just going to kind of hop right into questions and sort of talk about your work, talk about things in our relationship and sort of the purpose of purpose that prevails and, and kind of what we're doing here on race and church well, one history. One of the things your, your, your listeners are going to miss out on, because I don't think they'll see the visual, your hair is rocking today, man. You got the <laughs> waves going. Oh, he got to Clemson and it was level hey, up time. I see. I see. Well, hey, um, we have amazing doctors and learned scholars and theologians on here. But we always start with like, we're people, right? We're just people who live and what God has given us to do. So what are some things you like to do on Jamar time, hobbies, <laughs> things that maybe nobody else knows, stuff you like to do? 
Well, first of all, I apologize for lowering the bar on all these experts and scholars. You just got me in here for this episode. But mm-hmm. listener, hold mm-hmm. on. You'll get right back into the swing of things with the next episode, I'm mm-hmm. sure. But uh, yeah. one thing, I'm not ashamed. You know, I'm, 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 I'm old enough to like what I like and not care if other people like it. I got into Formula One racing. I don't know if you and I have talked about this. How have we not it? talked about this? Okay. I'm going in Austin. I'm going no. in October to Austin. Okay, so either yes. we're going to be really good friends because you're going to take me with you, or we're not friends anymore at all. So there's how do that. we? It's been how have we <laughs> never talked about this? That's wild. I got into it recently with as every American Formula One Drive to Survive the Netflix series, and then I've been okay. following ever since. I subscribe to the channel. We we we're recording this. They're on their summer break. I'm counting downs. Uh, Notre Dame, where I went to undergrad, they're going to have the kickoff to their football season the same weekend as Formula One comes back from the summer break. So it's going to be a big sports weekend. Wait a minute, Notre Dame. Yes, sir. I, I've heard of that school. A I've little, heard of that school. A little. I, I think they're coming down to Clemson this year. <laughs> Is well, that we, happening? We got to get to that one together. So yeah, um, totally. I I, totally. I I like sports because we're very excited for Notre Dame coming. By the way, well, I hope so. I hope so, and I hope we give you a good game because Clemson is uh, <clears throat> a powerhouse uh, these days. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I like sports because you can either have it on in the background or you can get completely caught up in the drama. So it, it, mm. it works on either level. So that's one of the things I do. I've really gotten into one of the things that's just like therapeutic for me is just walking outdoors. Um, and there's all mm. kinds of health benefits that, that, you know, scientists have come up with it, but it really happened during COVID in like 2020 and you couldn't be around people. And uh, I was living at the Mm. time in Arkansas, which the nickname is the natural state. So it has all these beautiful Mm. trails outside. And so I would just go walking early in the morning, late in the afternoon, whenever, and uh, have kind of kept up with that. And it's sort of become part of uh, my sort of self-care routine, especially when things get stressful or I need to think Mm. about something. There's something between that, that brain body connection that really stimulates the creativity. So yeah, that's a little of my, non-work life formula one notre dame and walking <laughs> that's about it is it's that, a beautiful is that, trinity in that right order there. in that order <laughs> maybe in the notre dame <laughs> who knows we'll see how the season goes i'll let you know awesome well we usually kind of start the start the podcast with what we call testimony time mm. and so we just thought you maybe you can share what your testimony is how you want to share it, what, what particular avenue of your testimony, but what brought you to faith in Christ? That's, that's a, a really interesting story in how it pertains to my current work in racial justice, because I came to faith in the context of a white evangelical youth group. Um, and it's really fun reminiscing sometimes, like like every now and then on social media, there'll be some trend where it names some Christian rock group or some song that everybody can relate to. And I'm like, I remember that from high school um, yeah. or the traditions, you know, the the youth camps and the dumb games and all of that stuff. So that was the context in which I came to faith. And what's interesting is for a long, long time, I myself thought that it was due to some sort of negative experience that I became so passionate about racial justice in the church. When actually, as I reflect on it, it's because I I had really such a positive experience in high school uh, as a young Christian. Because if you can place yourself back in those 
very awkward teenage years. At least mine were. I didn't have the wavy hair like you, so maybe it was different for you. But <laughs> if you can place yourself back in that awkward phase of you know trying to find your place, which group am I in? What am I about? Um, that's where I was, and I really didn't feel like I had any place to belong until I started going to this youth group. It seemed like they valued me just for me. They appreciated my presence. Uh, they began to recognize some of the gifts that I still utilize to this day. And it was such an enjoyable experience. But the only thing that was kind of a barrier or made me feel excluded was my race. And it wasn't like yeah. people walking up and say, we don't want you to play with us because you, your skin is brown. It's nothing like that. It was more so... There was no frame of reference for my experience. There were no touch points for my culture. And so whether it was the applications or the examples in a sermon, whether it was the music, or whether it was sort of the social justice concerns that pertained to Black people, just wasn't mentioned. Mm. Just was like it didn't exist, which mm. then made me feel like a very important aspect of myself either didn't exist or was unimportant in those circles. And I think that's actually mm. a big mm. part of what drives the work that I do today. Man, that's a that's beautiful story. So I, I wanted to kind of go a different spin. I know you've done a lot of podcasts. I know we've uh, you're, you're on podcasts a lot. But I thought we kind of talk about our relationship a little bit, our friendship. And um you know, it started, I was just finishing my doctorate in history in, in Oxford, and you were in seminary down in Jackson, and we were finding out that we were moving to Mississippi College in Jackson. And uh, one of the first phone calls I made before I came to Jackson was someone gave me your number. And I'm like, I got to call this guy and connect. And so we began to sort of serve together in different areas and get involved in racial healing efforts and different topics that we were both passionate about. I wonder if you could talk to the audience a little bit about your transition kind of from thinking about full-time pastoral ministry to engaging justice work to history as an interpretive lens. And that tell us a little bit about well, that. What journey. was really remarkable is I remember hearing about you before you got down to the Jackson mm -hmm. area. And uh, as soon as folks said that you were a historian, that you just gotten your PhD from university, I was immediately intrigued. And I don't, I don't know why, because mm -hmm. we didn't know each other and I had no particular professional interest in history, but somehow I knew this was going to be an important connection. So I was so glad when you called and we made that connection very early on because obviously it's it's turned into a friendship and a, a professional relationship that's la lasted low these many years. So that was a significant and you were a significant connection into where I ended up, particularly going to the University of Mississippi. Uh, I, 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 I uh, told my students, one of them asked me recently, I teach uh, at Simmons College of Ken Kentucky, a historically black college in Louisville. And one of my students asked me, what made, what got you interested in history? And the shortest, simplest version is uh, the killing of Mike Brown. So uh, along with the rest of the nation, I was trying to wrap my head around what happened. And especially around things like, how do you have this predominantly black yeah. community being policed by this predominantly white police force? What, what are all the... So then I learn about redlining, 
I learn about the origins of the police force. I learn much more of our nation's racial history. And it honestly seemed to me like historians had this superpower because they had this knowledge about how we got to where we were that seemed to really unlock and explain a whole lot of what we're dealing with in the present. So I just began to see the relevance. And, and there are other factors, right? Like I'm finishing up my master's in divinity at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. I have already started to receive some of the blowback, which has by now become pretty commonplace because in that period, I was beginning to speak and write publicly about racism mm. in the church. And then, of course, there are always people who think you're doing too right. much, being devices, call you Marxist, communist. Today, it's a critical race theory or woke, whatever. So that was already starting to come back. And mm -hmm. I was wondering in this very sort of conservative Southern Presbyterian denomination if there was even a place for me. Um, and I actually enrolled. I, can't, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Dr. Pickett, if uh, I enrolled for a minute at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Tigers. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, it led I to going to say the Tigers. The reason I did was because it was a modular program. That. I wouldn't have to relocate. And um, That's but right. I was I only there for that. a semester because as soon as I started, I was like, they don't have the resources I need to study black people, <laughs> like whether in the church or throughout general history. So that's mm. when I took the class at Jackson State University. Mm. And to this day, yeah. that is the only class where I have done all the readings scheduled in the course ahead of time. Like I just I, like this never <laughs> happened from college ever in in that class, though, it was just book after book, knowledge after knowledge. It was, uh, you know, John mm. Dittmer's local people. It was, um, you know, the the history mm. of Jim Crow. It was all of these books. It's I've got the light of freedom. All of these books that that was just this hidden history that I've never knew before, and I just devoured those books while working full time and going to two different schools. It was in, it was incredible, but I, I just couldn't get enough. Yep. Exactly. And, that was kind of like a gateway, and then <laughs> and Dr. Exactly. Dr. Luckett was dealing. And then I'm friends with you <laughs> and you're talking about all this stuff, especially around Mississippi mm -hmm. history that I didn't know. And then you got University of Mississippi right up the road. So you were instrumental. Mm -hmm. And I thank you to this day for helping me navigate the process of applying to it because it was very late in the game. For oh, me. man. Um, but ending up there was was really a blessing that that probably wouldn't have happened or certainly not as easily without you. It's interesting. It's interesting what the study of history does in terms of opening our eyes to things. And I don't know if it's a, it's not a superpower, but it it certainly takes it takes your eyes yep. and you just see things differently. Right. As as we begin to see how systems are created and we begin to understand power and we begin to understand how power is abused. And we begin to see in real time what that looks mm -hmm. like over two to three centuries. And you, and then, and then you're beginning to look at all kinds of institutions differently. It really changed right? me. Yeah. And, and you are, and you're looking at the church and we're going, is the church in America? Can, can, can the church, can this happen <laughs> in the church or is the church somehow set apart or, or, or could we possibly succumb to the same issues that we're seeing? And, and I remember you're starting to speak about that publicly and talk about that. And both of our lives begin to, began to change. But yours in, 
began to change dramatically, right? And so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that experience, about like, okay, I started to speak about these things mm-hmm. in the church. And then, wow, like some so I remember opened. preaching at a church in Oxford, Mississippi. And remember, I had gone to school to get a theological degree. I was on my way to ordination. I was an intern at a church. I did quite a bit of preaching in those days. And I went to this predominantly almost all white church in Oxford, Mississippi. And I preached about racial justice. If we heard it today, it would not be at all inflammatory or edgy or anything, but it had been spoken about so rarely and so rarely from the pulpit. I remember afterwards, you know, there's kind of the receiving line where the pastor shakes hands with you. So one, one of these gentlemen comes up to me and I'll never forget. He was, he was very tall because he used his size to intimidate me. He got right up in my face. He towered over me and, and almost trembling with rage and, and with red face. He said, you didn't mention the gospel, not once. And it was so jarring because, number one, I did (laughs) mention the gospel. It was all centered around Jesus, as all my preaching is. Mm. But then um, what stuck with me was the specter of physical intimidation and physical violence. And this is in the context Mm. of a church. And the thing about a church is, or any religion, Mm. is you're supposed to have the moral and ethical framework to navigate things like differences across people and how to reconcile or be at peace with one another. And yet here he was uh, in my face. And, and, and I also remember feeling surrounded by people and yet isolated at the same time because no one there really understood the seriousness of addressing race in America, let alone in the church. So they didn't think there would be any threat. Uh, whereas if I go to other contexts mm-hmm. and, and where black people are hosting or something, they know this can this can go south real quickly. Um, or, uh, so so yeah, you know, incident after incident. That was one of the ones in person, but online, constant attacks. And then in the denomination I was in, uh, I remember I was going to sit for ordination, and you get exam examined, and they ask you a bunch of questions. I wasn't able to do that because I was, uh, I had moved back to the Delta and I was going to University of Mississippi and I wasn't able to make the meeting. So, so somebody from the committee, the, the credentials committee, they call it, called me and said, so what do you, what do you want to do? How do you want to handle this? And I said, you know what? I should just press pause on this whole thing while I'm a full-time grad student, make sure I get my degree, all that stuff. And he said, okay, okay. I understand. That's probably a good idea though, because I have it on good authority that had you sat for these questions, there were a group of ministers who were basically going to come with gotcha questions around race. And they were going to try to paint you as this heterodox, uh, you know, uh, not gospel driven, whatever label you want to put it on, basically try to paint you as unfit for the Mm -hmm. ministry because of your views on racial justice. And it was more and more and more and more of that. And so, that along with the fascination I had with history and the relevance, which is career ending, right? I mean, you have to be ordained to be licensed to pastor. And you had invested at that point years. how many years in a seminary education? 107 credit hours. Yep. And so I've had those experiences too, where men come up and use 
stature, height, angry gestures. But that's different being an African-American <laughs> man in Mississippi. Whole lot of context. Right. As a white man, that that is a completely different experience. And And to think 30 years before that, 20 years before that, there could have been violence. Stuff is real. Stuff is real. I mean, yeah, at the very least, it affects your job. Yeah. Um, at most, it could affect your physical well-being. So, yeah, this this stuff is not uh, yeah. it's not a joke, and it's not just something you argue about online. It's real. In the church, of all the people that should engage you in a loving, humble, Christ-like way. Well, and and I think what. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what racism actually is, right? Most people think it's primarily Mm. about people liking or not liking other people because of their skin color. That is to say, most people are thinking Mm. um, effectively or operationally that racism is, is, is mainly about attitudes. Do I say the N word? Do I have friends of a Mm. different race? All of that matters and it's part of it. Mm. But ultimately race is about identity and power. So, so the power part yeah. gets to the systemic and the institutional and the policy aspects that create and perpetuate racial inequality, which is to say, if you've got the momentum of hundreds of years of racism, and we expect that to come to a dead halt because a civil rights act was passed or a voting rights act was passed, or you change a few words on some paper. Well, I mean, imagine a, a, a dump truck going 60 miles an hour and it comes up against like one of those little guardrails, like, like, like when you're leaving or entering a a parking garage, like it's not going to stop because it touches that little guardrail, right? That's the force and the momentum of our racist history. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's, it's a sociological Mm. physics, if you will. Um, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Mm. There is a momentum to this prejudice that is hard mm. to stop and slow down, especially mm. when there are plenty of people who don't just want to stop it. They want to remove obstacles and keep it going. They want to put the gas pedal down. So yeah, that's the power part, but yeah. there's an also identity part so, where this man at this church the way I was talking about race in a way that he hadn't heard before in his personal life or in church, it was, it was doing something to his sense of self. It was doing something to his mm. sense of belonging, who he perceived himself to be as a good person. And now mm. you're bringing this race stuff in it, which is A, dethroning my heroes slash idols, and B, putting me in a predicament of being somehow caught up in this system in an accountable way. And now you're bringing race into my church, right? They've been doing that on the news. They've been doing that over in DC and all these places, but it doesn't come to my church now. Absolutely. That's my space, right? Now, why is there in America this disconnect or in the white evangelical church, this disconnect between the gospel and talking about racial suffering. Fantastic and question. And why and why can't you connect them? Why so, can't you connect them? It 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 has a history. <laughs> so uh 
in in my first right. book, The Color of Compromise, I talk about the Virginia Assembly in 1667 passing this law that said baptism would not emancipate uh, an enslaved person of uh, indigenous descent, mixed race descent, or African descent. And that one policy mm. right there is so instructive, all the way back in 1667, because first of all, you get this combination of race, religion, and politics. You get this political body, the Virginia Assembly, passing a law regarding religion, baptism, that was codified around emerging notions of race uh, because it applied to indigenous, mixed mm. race, and African descent people. And what they were saying in that law mm. What they were doing was separating body and soul. What they were doing is saying, in effect, mm -hmm. to these enslaved persons, uh, God can have your soul, but we own your body. Your profession of faith, where in Europe would have made you equal to us, doesn't apply here. So they came up with a way to justify it theologically because it was all around profit, right? You, and if you had joined the church before sixteen. 69 if you had become a member yeah exactly you were free uh so so we have to realize they are changing the rules to justify slavery and keep people mm. in perpetual lifetime generational servitude which was also an innovation right so so it goes very far back innovation. but but essentially they're creating this dichotomy between the material and the spiritual and they're very selective about it they mainly mm. maintain that dichotomy when it comes to slavery so we can look at southern presbyterians they came up with this doctrine called the spirituality of the church and they said that the role of the church is primarily ministerial and uh uh declarative which can be good. Basically, Martin Luther King said something similar when he said uh, the church is, is, is to be the conscience of government, right? Not to be beholden to one side or the other. Mm -hmm. But but the way the spirit of justice was deployed in, in practice was anytime the subject of racism or white supremacy or slavery came up, they said, oh, well, we can't talk about that in church. That's a civil matter. That's a government matter. That's a social matter. And the church is spiritual. But it was selective because they didn't do that. Like in, in this day, in the 1700s and 1800s, they was all up in your business. If you were committing adultery, if you were drinking too much, if you were gambling, they were all in that. Um, and then later on, when it came to topics like abortion or even taxation of Christian schools or whatever, they were all about advocating for certain policies. So suddenly- With sermons- specifically talking about these exactly ideas. oh they preached about it they taught about it they wrote about it yeah. um so it, it's it was a selective application mm -hmm. of the spirituality of the church or the separation of the church mm -hmm. in these other matters it was always used um in most churches as as an excuse to avoid accountability and the necessary actions to address racism here's the thing the most frequently repeated command in the bible is do not fear do not be afraid. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because living out mm. the Christian way is going to bring you up against some things that instill fear in you, that cause you to, 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 to shrink back and be timid in the face of the decisions that you have to make. Why? Because it's going to cost you relationships, friendships, income, mm. a job, your life. Yeah, But I try to encourage us all 
to live in light of history. And one of the applications of that is if you look back on any historical figure who you admire, particularly if they're a person of faith, they have made costly decisions because of their faith. So many people admired Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm. risked everything and ultimately lost his life right. for opposing Hitler and the complicity of Christians in that regime. Uh, you and I uh, share an admira admiration of Fannie Lou Hamer, who she reminds me of the story of the widow's might in the Bible where, uh, you know, uh, the question is who gave more, the, the wealthy person who gave um, a larger financial amount or the widow who gave her last penny uh, to donate to the temple, right? Mm. And, the, and, and Jesus said, the widow gave more because she gave everything she had. In a similar sense, Fannie Lou Hamer was a poor sharecropper. She didn't have anything to begin with. And she gave all of that up mm. just to register to vote. And mm. her the rest of her testimony mm. is working on behalf of her physical and health. Her health. She dies, her physical uh, health. She's got multiple complications from a horrific torture in a, in a Mississippi jail from cancer yep. where she couldn't get adequate treatment, yep. uh, a lack of you know nourishment and health and all of that stuff due to poverty. So so she gave all of that up, had a, had a really a lifetime of hardship. Um, but she 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 walked that path because she truly believed what she said she believed. And I think the the, the, the same call mm. and charge and challenge is to us and the same encouragement is to us is do not be afraid, but it always comes with a promise, which is, I will be with you wherever you go. You know, um, we've done a lot of cool things together, switching topics a little bit. We've done a lot of talks. I remember, um, was it 2016? <laughs> we came out of that radio station yeah, wow. in Mississippi talking about the flag. And they got so many comments. They wouldn't let people comment yes. on their actual this is radio the right show. Wing remember that? radio station in Jackson, Mississippi. And we left that talking studio. Talking about the flag. Going, uh, with the Confederate battle yeah. flag emblem. And you and I left that studio going. Literally checking over our shoulders. We need to get to the uh, car pretty quick. Because <laughs> like I said before, it's real out here. Yes. And we've gone to um, mm. a lot of different places together, North Carolina and Charleston, South Carolina. And one of my favorite oh, things yes. we ever did was this pilgrimage to Charleston. And um, I just thought, I just wanted to reflect on that a little bit with you publicly. And I don't know. Kind of what, what'd you think about that? Well, let's tell the audience a little bit about what we did. Well, it was this Christian group and, you know, they had been on a journey. I think that's important to note uh, that, that mm. they had already recognized the importance of making racial justice a priority within their organization and with their, their work in general. And namely through your relationships, they reached out and, and wanted us to lead a historical pilgrimage to Charleston, South Carolina, which of course was one of the largest slave ports in, in U.S. history. And I just remember, first of all, the power of a pilgrimage cannot be overstated. Mm. Um, mm. Because there's an incarnational aspect, religious language, in, incarnate means flesh or body, incarnate means in flesh, in, in person experience, right? There's an incarnational yeah. aspect of going somewhere. If you haven't been, a perfect example is in Memphis, the National Civil Rights Museum, which, mm. which is built onto the Lorraine Motel where, where Dr. King was mm. assassinated. I mean, you yes. go there 
and physically being there and they've 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 preserved the hotel and even the room as it was that day in 1968 mm. there's something about seeing it and seeing it up close and being there that that makes it tangible and real in a way that a book or a documentary never could and same with charleston and so i remember distinctly um we were outside and there, it was just a corner um but it was this brick wall that was part of uh, one of the original slave trading sites, the old slave market, yeah. the old slave market, the old slave market on Chalmers Street, and putting my hand on the bricks that had been there at the same time, and just almost feeling the mm. the, the heaviness mm. and the lamentation of the the horrific actions that had taken place on that land, and that's what makes it so transformative. I grew up in the Midwest, and I just mm. could not have conceived mm. of some of the history in the South until I was there, until I was in the Delta and I saw cotton <sighs> blooming in late summer, early fall, until I went to Charleston mm. and put my hand on the bricks yeah. uh, uh, of the wall at the slave market. So those kinds of things are, are pilgrimages. That's what a pilgrimage can do. And then we walked to a mother manual, remember? Absolutely. And and you and then you think about the modern implications. That was such a powerful experience, the the Mother Emanuel right. AME Church, because um, you know, first of all, the horrific event itself, this act of racial terrorism, uh, a white supremacist comes in, sits all the way through a Bible study, and at the end, uh, pulls out a gun and and kills uh, nine people, including the pastor Clement Pickney. And um, going to that church, which has a history. An incredible history all its own, where uh, Denmark Vesey, who uh, planned what would have been probably the largest um, hmm. slave uprising uh, before it was foiled by other enslaved people, uh, he was at that church. And then, the, so so the history of black churches in general, and hmm. Emmanuel in particular, as sites of, of of black organizing and empowerment, goes back hundreds of years. And then, the retaliation for for that plot was they destroyed the church. And in so many instances, retaliation mm. for black people asserting their dignity and fighting for their rights is to destroy the church. Um, the physical building. Destroy the people. Exactly. To kill Denmark yeah. Vesey um, as well. And that's it. That's that's instructive as well. Um, where they target their rage and their destruction is it always includes the church. Emmanuel was interesting because you felt the weight of that very recent history. I mean, this is less than 10 years. Um, but at the same time, you feel an energy there because of the resilience of the people. Not to say that there was not a resilience in, in Mississippi, mm. but being in this bigger city, mm. it being more recent, this long history is very palpable. The we're not going to let this stop us kind of sense. Man, well, I wanted to talk about a couple other things. One is, you know, I can't remember the exact dates, but I want to say it's 2015, 2016. Um, you know, there's a presidential election coming up. Um, uh, you and many others um, were critical of, this, of, of a certain candidate. And um, that cost you in, in, in a white evangelical church space. And you have talked about feeling abandoned by white brothers and sisters and members of the church. I wonder if you could just talk, talk a little bit about that abandonment and how that felt. 
the results came back after that election night. So this is November 2016. And then, you know, you get the call, uh, the, the news channels call it for, for Trump. And then in the days following, you get the polling numbers and the exit polls that demonstrated that 81% of white evangelicals who voted, voted for him. And I had been raising the alarm about it from the jump because in June 2015, when he comes down the escalators at his own hotel, he begins his presidential campaign by saying that um, Mexican rapists are crossing the border, you know, and demonizing and uh, sort of poisoning the well against an entire group of people. And that was part of a pattern, right? Because uh, back in the 80s, he puts out this full page ad calling for the death penalty for the so-called Central Park Five, now the exonerated five. Uh, because they were found, found to be not guilty at all. Um, and then even going back further in his real estate dealings and apartment rentals have been dealing unfairly with black residents versus others. So I'm saying this is going to be bad, not just for black people, but for our whole country. And mm-hmm. what was so hard was I was attending a small white evangelical non-denominational church at the time where the majority of people were white. And I knew for a fact that many of them, um, on the same night, I was very saddened and felt this weight around the election. They were buoyant and they were celebrating. And in that moment, I felt completely misunderstood. It felt like I had been duped. Because this is a group where we had prayed together. They had held my child in their arms. We had broken bread and shared meals together. We sang together, all of these things. And I had sacrificed a lot, not being at a black church and all these things, uh, crossing the color line to bring about some reconciliation, multiracial church, all that stuff. And in the midst of all of that, it was like they hadn't seen me at all, like truly seen me. And that my concerns as a black person with a black family of concern to them. It's also where I first in an experiential way began to see this toxic connection between certain segments of the church and certain segments of politics, because it was almost the one-to-one identification of me voting this way is a demonstration of me being a good Christian. And really the only way you have to, exactly. There's no other way. That's what it was, is it became another one of those things where you didn't mention the gospel at all. It's the idea that, well, if you didn't vote this way, can you really call yourself a Christian? (laughs) Well, brother, I just want to say, you talked about fear earlier. I was a a young professor, Mm -hmm. and I remember our, our daughter was in the hospital at the time, Sadie Margaret, and there was a lot of fear being at a small evangelical college, being more vocal. And I just want to say to you, I'm sorry I was not there for you more in that time on that issue. And I love you, and I hope you can forgive me for that. And I want you to know that that experience, I never want to feel it again. Well, I thank you, brother, for that. Um, As I look back on that, era when we were both in in central Mississippi, I count you as one of the few allies that I had in that struggle. We actually needed a diversity of members in the body. And there's something to the differences that help us function better. Mm -hmm. 
And so as we think about the church as a body comprised of different people and people groups, maybe there are parts of the body that we need to pay more attention to and learn from and make sure are strong for mm. the functioning, not just of that part of mm. the body, but for the entire body uh, in mm. general. Mm. Hey, tell us about your new book. Okay. Well, the best way to to learn more and to follow my work is through my Substack, jamartisby.substack.com. I, I have a feeling this is going to take off just like podcasting <laughs> <did>. <laughs> Go so, ahead and say it again. jamartisby.substack.com. All my latest articles, writings, giveaways, discounts, all the, all the fun stuff is there. But I also have a couple of different podcasts. Pass the Mic, M-I-C, is one I co-host with Tyler Burns. We talk about current events. We talk about culture. We talk about everything under the sun, uh, all from a black Christian perspective. So this is a way to sort of listen in on the conversations that like we we typically be having in barbershops and whatnot, uh, where white people mm-hmm, aren't. Mm-hmm. So you can listen in there and we invite you to do so. The other thing is uh, my, my solo podcast called Footnotes. We've done some incredible series. I think your listeners would be interested in uh, one of our series called White Nation Under God, where we talk about white mm. Christian uh, nationalism. You are also on a different series called Those Meddling Kids, uh, unmasking the... Uh, Anti. Did anybody ever listen to that? Did anybody ever listen to my episode? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that was one of the ones they, they they remarked upon most in a in a in a appreciative okay, way. Right. And so that one was all about all right. critical race theory. And then uh, the latest uh, series is a is is a is called fighting racism. It's about everyday folks fighting racism right where they are. Um, so those are some of the ways you can access mm. me. But I've also got a couple of books: Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism. Uh, those are available wherever books are sold. Hey, one last thing. You got our audience here. What would you offer a person of faith about their next step they could take? A next step in a journey toward racial healing. Maybe some are just starting down the path. Maybe some started down the path and kind of got rerouted. Maybe some have gone back to the beginning and said, I'm not doing that. What What are some kind of practical steps you might or advice you might offer? The way I think about it is when the Hebrews had to cross the Red Sea into a new land. They were leaving a place of oppression, but it was also familiar. And I can imagine some of them standing on the edge of the the river uh, of the Red Sea, seeing the water all around them. Sure, it had parted, but that that could crash in on any second. Maybe got second thoughts. Maybe looked behind them and said, well, I know it was bad, but at least it was familiar. Mm. And what's next is completely unknown. And as you're standing on the edge of the shore there, what I encourage you to take just one step, one step into the unknown, and then another and another. And and before you know it, you've crossed to the other side. But what's on the other side, as with for the Hebrews, wasn't an immediate entry into the promised land. No, there was a wilderness wandering. And that's how I feel right now in terms of church community and tradition, not quite sure where I belong, what was familiar Mm. is no longer welcoming, all of that. And that can be very disruptive. But the other thing that happened when they were wandering was they formed a community. They wandered as a people. And I would say that it is only in the wandering, the wandering that we Mm. experience because we're trying to pursue justice, that's when we encounter our community. That's when we encounter our people. That's the one testimony I have 
is that as I've taken these risky steps that have been costly, I've been, you know, booted off of speaking engagements, preaching engagements, lost, you know, speaking um, assignments, lost friends, all of those things. The one thing I can say is, is absolutely true is that in taking those steps, I have found a people on the way pursuing justice who have become like another family for me. And that is also what awaits you too. In that wilderness wandering, there is a companionship uh, in the pursuit of justice. Hey man, I just want to tell you, I love you so much. I love you as a brother in Christ. I love you as a brother. I love you as a historian. Thank you for your amazing work. Thank you for the work you're doing at Simmons. Thank you for all your books, your writing. I just want to tell you, I just want to encourage you. I hope our, our audience will follow you and read your stuff and encourage you. And uh, thank you for all that you've taught me. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to know you. And I love you. Man, love you too, brother. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so much for hosting me on your podcast. And uh, it was great fun as always. All right, Jamar. God bless you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought-provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless. Next Chapter Podcasts.